church, the present expression of the kingdom of God. The present expression of the kingdom of God. Let's read Matthew 16 and verse 18. Jesus said, And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. So only two times this report, and the Lord uses the word church in his words or in his teaching and preaching. Once here and once in chapter 18, which we will deal with in a later sermon. He said, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Or the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Glory to God. Would you say amen to God's word? You may be seated this morning. The church is the present expression of the kingdom of God. As I've shared with you, this was a theme of the early church. It is, seems today that in the gospel preaching of our hour, there's very little emphasis upon the kingdom. Not so with the early church. It appears, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, appears 33 times in the gospel of Matthew alone. The phrase, the king, he's the only one that utilizes that particular phrase that's recorded. The phrase, the kingdom of God, is mentioned 70 times in the New Testament, 40 times by Luke in his gospel and in the book of Acts. It was mentioned in the continuation of this, uh, the works of the ministry of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1. We learn from the time between his resurrection and the coming of the Spirit that he spoke to them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And the last verse of the book of Acts is it ends with Paul in prison. The church doesn't end. There is no two little words at the end of Acts that says the end. Acts is still being written, at least in terms of, of what is taking place in the church today. The book of Acts is continuing right today. So that uh, if, you, if you will, it's not something that's a part of the sacred canon, I understand, but the life of it. Paul is preaching there is no idea that when we reach to the end of Acts, and this is the end of the story, it carries on. And the Bible said that Paul was preaching the kingdom of God. He was preaching the kingdom of God. The church is given in this passage, it says, the keys of the kingdom was given to the church. Hebrews chapter 12, the last verse, couple of verses says, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us therefore have grace that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Again, as I've shared this with you, I want to impress upon this church afresh that we are the present expression of the kingdom of God. In this age in you and I live in, the scripture talked about this coming kingdom of Christ in the Old Testament and that there would be a messianic kingdom that would come, a kingdom to which there would be no end. That Christ ruler, the ancient of days, oh glory, he is going to come, he's going to sit upon the throne in Jerusalem. The son of David, the son of Abraham will be upon that throne and he will rule and reign forever. And clearly the scripture says 
of his kingdom, there will be no end. But the scripture also foretold that before the coming of that kingdom, there would be a great day of wrath called the day of the Lord, the day of his judgment, the day of vengeance of God. It was a great day of wrath that is coming. So that immediately preceding the, the establishment of the kingdom in its full expression on earth, with Christ fully visibly reigning upon the earth, immediately before that would come a judgment all over this world. It would be an effect that it would draw Israel back to God. There would be an antichrist that would reign and he would be judged. There would be many judgments poured out upon the earth. Revelation will tell us and Daniel also that it will be a period of seven years. A judgment like the world has never seen. It will be so devastating that absolutely more than half uh, of the world's population will be destroyed during that judgment. And then the Antichrist and how much he will destroy as he establishes himself to be God or sets himself up to be God. Satan, uh, there, there are wars going on in the heavens. There are wars uh, going on in the earth and then judgments being poured out upon the world. A terrible, terrible time of the wrath of God that's coming. It is still yet future. And the Lord did something though when he came. Uh, he let know there's going to be a space of time and that he's going to come first and save. He's going to come and die for sins and he's going to go and sit at the right hand of God and give an opportunity for the world to get a picture, for the world to get a sense of his kingdom and have an opportunity to become a part of that kingdom before the wrath of God is poured out upon this earth. So that when that kingdom is established in its full effect and full manifestation, there already advanced citizenship. Glory to God. That you can become a part of the kingdom right now. Now today, spiritually and morally and literally you can be a part of that kingdom. It is not yet established in its full civil power and civil manifestation upon the earth, but in its full moral reign, in its full spiritual reign. It is established in the church of Jesus Christ. Right now, there's a window. Right now, there's a door of grace. It's been opened up to the people of this world. And it is that through the church that Christ Jesus is doing his work in this earth through his body, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way you can escape. If you're going to escape that judgment, if you're going to be a part of that kingdom, then you've got to give yourself to the king. And if you give yourself to the king, he's going to make you a part of the church. There is no escape from the judgment apart from being in the church church of Jesus Christ. That's critical for you to understand that so that right now, I don't care if you're a Jew or Gentile, if you're not in the church, you're lost. I'm not talking about going to church. If you are not, you got to do that too. But if you are not a part of the body of Christ and been baptized into that body and letting that work out and be expressed in your life through service and attachment to a local body of believers as a New Testament illustration and example gives to us, then understand that you're not in a place of salvation. You're lost and the judgment of God is soon to come upon this world and you're going to experience wrath instead of salvation. We don't like to hear that message. We don't like for someone to tell us about wrath and doom that is coming, but it's a reality. It's a truth. God is not winking at sin. God is not letting sin get by. God is not saying everything's all right. Nations have got to be judged and sin has got to be dealt a final death blow.
And God's getting ready to do that. And I shared with you about this idea of being in the kingdom of God. Right now, if you're in God's kingdom, that's going to mean you're in the church. You cannot be presently in this world a member, a citizen of the kingdom of God without being a member of the body of Christ. There is no other expression of the kingdom of God presently except through the church. The church possesses the keys of the kingdom. The church is living under the reign of Jesus Christ. Only the church is experiencing his peace and his righteousness. Only the church is being led by his government. Only the church is rendering unto him true worship in spirit and in truth. Only the church is rendering unto him the praise that he, that he accepts and that is due unto him. Only the church of Jesus Christ has been given the commission to go and preach the gospel unto every creature. That is our work. That is who we are called to do and what we are called to be. We are the present expression of the kingdom of God. Now we're going to see how all that plays out. And I, I shared with you that the first way, how is this, this kingdom seen? How is it manifested among us that we have the kingdom or that we are the present expression of the kingdom? And that is seen, number one, in the manifestation of the presence of Jesus Christ. You may not see Jesus. The world doesn't see Jesus. That doesn't mean he's not real. I cannot see air. That doesn't mean it's not real. I realize there are some things that can see it, but I cannot see my our heart, but I'm aware of its presence. All right? There are many things to us that are invisible. Radio waves are invisible, but we know they exist. Uh, sound waves are invisible, but we know that they exist. Uh, there are things in that you and I cannot see or hear with the, with the naked eye or the physical ear, but we have things that let us know that they are real and they do exist. Uh, but I'm going to tell you, there is evidence that Jesus Christ uh, is in the church uh, and he's guiding the church. He's directing the church. He is working with his people. And his presence is manifest among us. How is that realized? That is realized, number one, in his presence being manifested through his working relationship. He is the employer of the church. He has employed us to go out and to do his work. And I went through the scriptures and gave to you the passages in the Bible that deal with the Great Commission. And I've shared those with you and how that the Lord has sent us out and that we are here to do his work in the world. And as Matthew said, Jesus made this promise unto his disciples. He said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And he said, and teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. That promise to be with us in that passage he said, even to the end of the age or the end of the world, that promise of him to be with us was not a promise there of him being with us to comfort us. It wasn't a promise of him being with us to make us feel better about who we are or to protect us. It was a promise of this. I'm sending you out to do work. I'm sending you out to preach. I'm sending you out to teach. I'm sending you out to make disciples and I'm going with you. Hallelujah. I'm going with you. And when Christ goes with you, he doesn't go with 
you as just a companion. He doesn't go with you as just a fellow laborer. He goes with you as Lord. He cannot be anywhere in your life except Lord. He can be a friend. Yes, he is a friend. Yes, he is a companion. All of that is true, but he never ceases to be Lord. He's not a companion that is my equal. He is not one that stands beside me as simply an advisor. When Christ is in your life, he is your master. When Christ is in your life, he is your Lord. He is your Redeemer. He is your God. He is everything unto you. So understand that this idea that became principle, and take your Bibles and get them open. I want to read a few verses. I want to bring home a point that we're aware of, but I want to drive some, some, some basic principles that you and I understand today, but I want to drive them home fresh to our life. Principle and key in this great commission that our activity was twofold. We were told to preach the gospel and we were told to make disciples which involved teaching. That's our activity. And coinciding with that, actually I'm going to deal with later, was this ministry of healing. That is part of the gospel of the kingdom. Well, that's for a later sermon. But key in, 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 this, in the Great Commission, Mark emphasizes preaching the gospel. Matthew doesn't emphasize preaching it. He emphasizes teaching, making disciples and teaching them. The first teach in Matthew 28, go ye therefore and teach all nations, is literally go ye therefore and disciple all nations. And then he says, those disciples, you teach them, different word, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you to, to, to keep and to guard the commandments that I've given unto you. And so this key work that you and I have is, min, is the ministry of preaching and teaching and healing. And then the, thir, the, um, the, the uh, power with which we have to do that, the Christ says, I will impart to you my spirit. He says, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem and tell the power you've been enclosed or endued with power from up on high. In John 20, he said, receive Holy Ghost. Receive Holy Ghost. He said, do not leave Jerusalem until I have sent the spirit. He said that you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and then you shall be witnesses unto me. So it was this idea of an impartation would be our power and strength to go out and to do this work. And Jesus is working with us primarily. Number one, he is going to be the confirmer through the Spirit. He will confirm his word in order to bring conviction so that when we preach, it will not just be the power of our words. We must preach under the unction. He will give us the power to anoint us to preach. But when we preach under that unction, it will not just be our words trying to penetrate hard hearts and callous minds. It will be that Christ, through his Spirit, will pierce the hardness of men's hearts and will bring them under the conviction of the Holy Ghost so that they realize that this is the message of truth. This is the message of Christ. And though they were not there to witness his resurrection, he is alive. Though they cannot see him, he reigns. Though they cannot open the heavens and look to see the right hand of God, yet he sits there and they are made aware of that in their inner being because the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ by his spirit pricks their heart and brings them under the conviction of their sin. Without him doing that, gospel preaching is fruitless. Secondly, when they are repentant, he, can, he saves that sinner. 
He redeems them through His Spirit, the agency of His Spirit. His blood is applied to their life and they are not just convicted, they are converted. And He brings them again through the agency of the Holy Spirit into the body, His own body, the church, the body of Jesus Christ. And they are then united to Him in spirit, joined unto the Lord. He is with us. That's His business. I can't save. I can lead you to the water, but I can't make you drink it. I can tell you it's there, but it It'll take an act of faith and repentance on your part in order to receive it. And Jesus will convict you. But when you are faith, when you have faith and repent, He will also save you. He will see that you are not lost, but that you are restored to your home. You're brought back into fellowship with the Father, that you're reconciled to God and adopted into His family. And He'll fill you with the Spirit and make you His own. And then thirdly, he is with us to disciple. We do not become the masters of people's lives. We become helpers. We become examples. But the master of every Christian is Jesus Christ. The head of every valid church is Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is not your head, you're lost. If Jesus Christ is not actively leading and guiding and shepherding your life, you're lost. There is no way that you can be saved today apart from the shepherding and the guidance of Jesus Christ himself. You can go to church. You can pay your tithes. You can sing a gospel song. But until you have bowed the knee and confessed the sin, until you have surrendered the heart to the lordship of Jesus, until you have said, here I am, Lord, send me, until you have denied yourself and taken up the cross and said, I belong to God and my life is no longer my own, then you are not saved. Jesus must be the master of every disciple. Now I want you to take, there's something here as I, as I begin this, digging this out a little bit in some familiar scripture and some fundamentals of Christianity. Take your Bibles, I want you to see something. Because this principal work that I want to stress is making disciples because I'm not preaching predominantly to sinners this morning. I'm in the church of Jesus Christ preaching to saints. And I want to remind us of our work of making disciples. This is the chief end. We preach to see sinners converted and become saints. But when they become a saint, they need to be perfected as disciples and saints. And there has to be a perfecting process that goes on. But we make disciples. That's our work. Make disciples. That's what you are if you're saved today. You're a disciple of the Lord. And so that means there must be a particular focus because we can't expect Christ to work with us if we're not doing what he said to do. He didn't say go and entertain the world. He didn't say go feed the world. And we may do some of that. No entertainment. We're never here to entertain the world. We may reach out to the hungry and feed some. But that's not our chief purpose. Our chief end is to make disciples, preach the gospel, see them converted, and then make them a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now this involves two things. It involves, number one, a discipler and the discipled. Someone's got to be there teaching. Someone's got to be there following. And every follower 
should eventually become a discipler. Every disciple should eventually become a discipler. You should be in growth, a strong disciple of Jesus, so that you can help in the process of making other people the disciples that they need to be in Jesus Christ. I want to read to you some verses that we know and remind us of something. This was an early church concept. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verse 1. Paul says this, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. This is what Paul said. He said, I want you to be a follower of me. I want you to look at my life. Measure it because I'm following Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. We do not see Christ, but we do see valid disciples of Christ. And I cannot be somebody who is without a witness. I do need to know him through the Spirit. I do need to understand him in the Word. But I'm going to tell you something. This thing is essential also that I see someone demonstrating this. I'm glad to know when by the time you and I came in this, and this is the way it started, even when the day the church began, when the church began on the day of Pentecost, there were already in place examples of lives to follow, lives that have already been grounded. For three and a half years, they've been in the school of the Master. They have been under the tutorage and the teaching of Jesus Christ and he has discipled them. They're trained. They know what they're doing. They know who they are. They're, they're not fly-by-nighters. They're not Johnny-come-latelys. They're established in the faith of the Lord. They know what it is to follow Christ so that when the people begin, the church begins, the Bible said they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking in bread and prayers. Why? Because they had examples. Today we want a Christianity that's invisible. We want to talk about the principle, but never have the practice. We want to talk about, hey, it is as such that, yeah, we got teachers that teach us the word, but don't look at the teacher. The most natural thing for you to do is to look at the man preaching and to make sure that he practices what he preaches. It is absurd for a father to tell his child, son, do as I say and not as I do. That means you are a joke. It means you're a fraud. It means you're fake. It means you're going to ask something of your son to do that you're not willing to do yourself. You want him to do what you say, but you won't do what you say. You're a hypocrite. And if one person follows a hypocrite, it'll just make them a twofold hypocrite. No, we need examples. We need disciples and disciples. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And verse 6, he says this. He talked about how the gospel came in power and much assurance in verse 6. And he said, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. He's not talking or taking away from following Christ. No, Paul said, I'm a follower of Christ, so imitate my life. That means if, you, if Paul's a follower of Christ and you live life even as Paul is living it, you're going to be following Christ because Paul is following Christ. In other words, Paul said, I'm in line. I'm in the school of Christ. Hey, join up with me. Follow in behind me. And you can look and use my life as an example. 
And he said, you became followers of us and of the Lord. Chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians and verse 14. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. That's what a disciple is. He's a follower, all right? And he said, you became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea and in Christ Jesus. They didn't have this idea in the early church uh, that every church had its own identity and every church had its own particular doctrine and every church had its own particular way of doing things. No, sir. Every church followed a pattern. Every church followed the same doctrine. Every church followed the same belief. And so when the gospel goes out to the church and establishes a church in Thessalonica, guess what? They don't make something that's brand new and that looks different and has its own unique image. No, sir. He said you became followers of us, followers of the Lord, and followers of the churches. Can I tell you something? You've got no right to reinvent the pattern. You've got no right to rework the image. You've got no right to, to make this thing look anything different than what the Bible has given us. It doesn't change with every age. It doesn't have something new. Every time a new culture comes along, it's the same principle. It's the same master. It's the same command. And we follow the same Lord living under the same word. And our goal is not to simply find some self-identity. Our goal is to know the Lord and who he is and find out what thus saith the word of God. Now, quickly, let me drive that home one more time. Another verse, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews, please, chapter 13. And he says in verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, your leaders. These are men who have convinced you of truth. This is not a rule that is just some dictatorial power whereby... You just happen to be shoved under their authority without any choice or liberty of will. No, they, these are men, again, who have convinced you through the preaching of truth that their words are not just words of men, but they are indeed the words of truth from the holy word of God. And he said, remember them who have spoken unto you the word of God. That's how they convinced you. Not the word of men, but by the word of God. And he said, whose faith follow." Follow their faith. Look at their belief. And he says this, considering the end of their conversation. He tells us what the end of their conversation is in the next verse. But first of all, he says this. In other words, consider the outcome of their life. Look at what life their life is producing. Look at the product that they are producing. Consider the character that has resulted from their activity. You see the pattern. You see their actions. You see their dedication. You see their practices. You see their habits. You hear their speech. You watch them. Yesterday being out among the people and we get to see sometimes what folks really are when they're out there playing ball with one another or playing a game with one another and they, and they kind of let their guard down so to speak. And so when you see these men and you see their lifestyle, you've understood that way out. Look at the outcome of that lifestyle. Look where it's going to lead them and where it's taking them. What is the outcome? I will tell you, what is the end? It's Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. It's Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. It hasn't changed. No, sir. The faith that we propose to you today is not the faith of Dan Woods. It's the faith of Jesus Christ. It's not something that I've 
have invented or concocted. It is that which is once delivered unto the saints. The faith that Jude said was once delivered unto the saints that we contend for, that we fight for, that we live for, that every day we walk in the faith of Jesus Christ and you become followers of those men. I'm challenging you this morning. The place you've got to get to is that your life can be a pattern, an example of what it is to follow Jesus. So that if somebody imitates your prayer life, they'll have an effective prayer life. If someone treats their wife like you treat your wife, they'll have a good marriage. Hello. If someone develops the habits that you've developed, they'll live a life true to Christ. You're not a hypocrite. You're real. I understand that men fail. But that's why it's so devastating when men fall. Yes, pastors fail. You can read them in the headlines too frequently. Men that have been great leaders, it would seem, and preachers of the gospel have done so much to defend the faith, and you find out when they die, they were rascals. But why is that so devastating to us? Why does that hit so close to home? I'll tell you why. Because we expect our leaders to practice what they preach. It's because we were looking at their life. Their life inspired us. It wasn't just the message, but what we saw of their life, what we saw of their sacrifice, what we saw of their their giving of themselves. It inspired us. It encouraged us. It directed us. And when we find out they were a hypocrite, when we find out they were a pretender, it hurts and it gets close to home and it hurts us. Why? Because the normal expectation is uh, is that we are not listening to hypocrites. Uh, We don't go to church with hypocrites. Uh, We go to church with real people who love God uh, and they're there because they want to be there. And the man that's preaching the gospel preaches it because he loves the gospel and he believes the gospel and he practices what he preaches. You have a right to expect your leaders to live what they preach and you have a responsibility to imitate their life and so that you become an example and a leader unto others. Now, if this business of ours is being a disciple and making disciples, I want to remind us of the basic requirements, some passages in the scripture of what it is to be a disciple. Let me begin in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew, please, chapter 10 and verse 24. I have first spoken to the discipler, but every discipler is also a disciple. And I want to take you now to bring home to you this business of fresh to our minds. If this is the product, this is what it looks like. What is a disciple? What's a disciple look like? What's a disciple do? What is required of a disciple? Because if our preaching does not produce that, we have no right to expect Christ to be with us. We have no right to expect Jesus to save souls if we're not preaching a gospel that he endorses. 
And if the preaching of that gospel doesn't produce a product that he himself desires, then we have no right to expect his presence among us. But if we preach and we're true to him, and we preach the gospel of the kingdom, hallelujah, and we teach them to observe what Christ has commanded them, and our preaching and teaching is consistent with the word, and we are telling them the truth about what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then we have a right to expect that our Lord will convict, that our Lord will convert, and that our Lord will be the master of every convert in the church, and that the church will stay united because we're all under one head working and laboring together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 10, one of the first things it is to be a disciple point that I want to make. Matthew 10 and verse 24. A disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household. First point is this. Now this is in a context in Matthew 10 when he has called his 12 apostles, disciples first and makes them apostles. He's called them and then he sends them out to go to the lost sheep of Israel and to preach the gospel. Verse 7 of chapter 10 say, and they're to preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice their message was not to go out to the world and say, would you like to go to heaven? That's not the gospel message. You saved and in Christ, you'll get to go to heaven. But the gospel message is not an invitation to heaven. The gospel message is a command to bring your life back under the rule of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Preach the kingdom. Tell them that they're outside of the king and the rebel. Tell them to repent and to turn their hearts back and live under the rule of Christ. Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you've received, freely give. And then he goes on to tell them not to worry about their own sustenance. He said, you're a laborer and you're worthy of your hire. He says, I'll take care of you. I don't want you to worry about your pay. I don't want you to worry, oh, glory to God, about your upkeep. What a promise from our Lord today that if we're preaching the kingdom of God, he tells us, you don't have to worry about it. I'll take care of your expenses. I'll take care of making sure that you've got what you need so that you can focus on doing what I've called you to do. Glory to God. Oh, we worry about this and worry about that. He said, you don't even worry worry about your script, which is your money belt. You don't worry about your purse. You don't worry about your clothes. I'm going to take care of all of that for you. And he said, it'll come through others. Find your worthy house and go in there. And if they're worthy, let your peace remain. You're my laborer and you're worthy of your hire. And then he tells them that they are to preach it with such conviction that if they go to a house and preach it in such a way and they leave that house and they're rejected and their, their peace returns to them he said when you go outside that house shake the dust off your feet you go outside that city shake the dust off your feet that's unheard of in gospel preaching today preach it so decisively that if they reject it shake the dust off your feet and move on Preach it. And the judgment for them will be worse than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, now watch. You're going to come into trouble. Verse 17. Men are going to deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. 
They're going to they're gonna beat you. They're going to bring you before governors and kings, and you're going to have to give a testimony. Don't worry about what you're going to say either. I'll give you what to say. I'll take care of your expenses, and I'll give you what you need to say in your hour of distress. And he goes on and tells them, verse 22, you're going to be hated of all men for my name's sake. What a commission. Go, I'm going to take care of your expenses. This all sounds good at that point. Preach the gospel, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils. That sounds wonderful. But this kind of message is so aggressive. This kind of message is so decisive. This kind of message is so powerful. This kind of message is so exclusive that it's going to anger the world. It's going to anger kings. It's going to anger governors. It's going to anger your own family. And they will turn against you and you will be hated of all men for my sake. Woo! Nice commission. Let's be a disciple. Sign me up, right? Yeah. Well, why, Lord? You're the king of the earth. You're the God of all creation. You're the Lord of heaven. You would think if God sends you to do something in his earth among his creation, it would be endorsed and received with joy and delight. And Jesus says, I want you to know something. It's not about you. It's about me. It's not you they're rejecting. It's me. And the reason that treatment's happening to you is because that's how they treated me. The disciple is not above his master. In other words, do not expect for the world to endorse your activity. If the world endorses us, we might want to look at what we're doing. If every church is accepted we have in this nation, and I'm glad. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something, though, and you listen to me very carefully. At least governmentally, for the most part, governmentally, this nation has allowed a liberty of religion and a freedom of religious expression. But if you think that even in America, Christianity's got a free ride, you've not read your history. I'm telling you, wherever there's been a move of God and wherever there's been true gospel preaching, there has been a reaction from the world of rejection, of criticism, oh, blasphemy. There's been rotten eggs and rotten tomatoes that's been thrown. There's been men that have been beaten in this country for the cause of Christ. Read about those early Pentecostals. I preached it to you not long ago, how that they would be taken off their horses in the mountains of North Carolina. They'd be knocked off their horses. They'd be beaten. They'd be whipped. In America, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, wherever men really preach the truth, there's going to be an opposition. There's going to be a hatred somewhere. If you can preach the gospel as it ought to be preached and the entire community endorses you, I'm going to tell you, you failed somewhere in the commission because in this world there's an enemy and our enemy is out to get us. He'll find a vessel. He'll find someone to stir up against the church. But don't be afraid. They crucified our Lord. They nailed him to a cross. They rejected him. They blasphemed him. They mocked him. They beat him. And they called him a devil. And you and I should not expect better treatment than him. Your first thing as a disciple is that you identify with Jesus. 
And however Jesus is treated, you will be treated. If your audience accepts Christ, you will be accepted. But if your audience rejects, rejects Christ, you will be rejected. He said, it's enough. It's enough that the servant has his master. That's sufficient. You're never going to be above him. You're never going to get better treatment. You're not going to be one that you can expect that you should be heralded as the world's savior when the world's savior came and they called him Beelzebub. Now, not everybody rejected him. There were those who clung to him. There were those who endorsed him and loved him. Not everybody called him Beelzebub. There are some that called him Christ, the son of the living God. Hallelujah. Not everybody thought he was in league with devils. There are those that said you are one who has been sent from God. And we believe and know that you're not of the devil and you're not of the world, but you have been sent by God to do a work on this earth. We're going to find that same thing. There will be those who receive us. There will be those who reject us. But when we are rejected, let's not sit down and say, oh, I better modify the message. Oh, I better ease up. Oh, I better not say that because I've stirred up. I've offended somebody. No, you don't modify the message because you're rejected. You say glory be to God that I'm counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ because if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, what am I a part of the household that I should expect better treatment than the Lord? Your role is to be as Christ and when that happens, expect the same treatment that Christ got Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Our Sunday school lesson in our youth class this morning. They've got a head start on you. At least they better have if they paid attention. We will see how they do today. Oh, my. I wonder if I should put them on notice that I might ask them a question. How about that? Woo, that would be wonderful, would it not? Yes. Nevertheless, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Let me again... Set the stage quickly for you. The Lord has went and he's come to the Mount of Transfiguration. He's come off the mountain. They have seen him glorified. It's been a wonderful occasion. A wonderful occasion and rejoicing. They're amazed at his power in verse 43. And his disciples are elated. Some of them are troubled. Three of them are elated because they were on the mountain and they saw his glory and the other nine have had to, had to deal with the mess down in the valley. And they're probably not too excited about that. But nevertheless, Christ has done what no other could do. He heals the child, delivers him, casts out an unclean spirit. And the Bible says they were all amazed in verse 43 at the mighty power of God. And then Jesus begins to tell them about that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and he's going to be given up, if you will, to struggles and difficulties that are going to take place. He's going to die. Jesus will set his face to go to Jerusalem and he goes marching forward to this place where he's going to die as if it is no, of no consequence isn't it amazing? You, you've got to admire and be amazed at a man that whenever 
you look at him and he tells you, this is my future. This is my destiny. This was actually not, I was in another passage in Luke this morning. I just remembered with these children, I'm the one that's wrong. This is not where they were at. Principles were here. I haven't got there yet, but I will get there. But whenever Jesus Christ says, I'm going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be rejected. And he puts a smile on his face. And there's a spring in his step. And he marches to it as if it's something that causes him no grief or worry whatsoever. Some men die in a shameful manner. Some men die with nobility and integrity. Christ is one of those. And as he's marching up to Jerusalem, he has come to this place. And the Bible says in verse 57, it came to pass that as they went in the way, he's on his way marching to Jerusalem. He's going there to die. And as he's in the way, I want you to notice, Luke tells us of three people that interact with Christ in this journey. Verse 58, or verse 57. A certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. How many of you have ever said that? If not, you sang the song because we sing it in this church. I will follow where he leadeth. I will pasture where he feedeth. Amen. How many of you have sang that song in this church? Well, you've basically made this what this man said. I'll follow you wherever you go. He saw it. I know you're going to death. I know you're going there. I'm going with you. Notice what Jesus said. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nest. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. I want you to get something, a principle of this that I think has been missed. Many times we look at this and we see, well, Christ had no possessions and no home. He didn't have a place to live, no, no land, no title, no car, no donkey, nothing. What a poor man. But that's not what Christ is saying. He's not lamenting the fact that he doesn't have a house. He uses an illustration from nature. He talks about birds and foxes. Birds have a nest. A nest, we call it a birdhouse, but a bird nest is not really a birdhouse. We make them in houses and make little houses for them. But they don't live there. Matter of fact, the only use for that nest for a bird is a place to lay eggs, hatch those eggs, a place to rest at night. But the bulk of their day is out flying. Working to find food, enjoying singing, sitting on a branch here or there. In other words, that nest is not a house for them in the way our homes are homes for us. They don't always eat their meals there. They don't go home three times a day to their house and their nest and say, come on, it's time for breakfast, it's time for lunch, it's time for supper. The only time they're going to eat a meal there probably is to take it to the, some little birds or chicks that are in the, in the nest itself. Foxes. Their hole is for them a shelter, a place to hide from the storm, a place to escape, maybe something else, but it's just a place to rest, a break from their activity, to come back and return to a place 
that their life is kind of just a cycle. But Christ is saying something. My life is not just a cycle. And I want you to understand something, sir. My life is a life of intensity. I do not, am not looking for any place here to rest and return to every day so that my life just becomes a sense of, of a cycle and I'm just living it and enjoying this life. I got a destiny. I got a place that I'm going and I'm not resting till it's accomplished. In other words, Jesus is telling him, in my life, there'll be no retirement. In my life, there'll be no sense of sitting back and taking it easy and saying, hey, I'm just going to rest and just kind and I let everything go now. My night comes and I can sit down and not worry about things. Jesus said, for me, it's a day. I'm going to work. I'm going to work because night comes when no man can work. And he said, I'm going to labor. There is an intensity about my life. Let me tell you something. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, there will never be a place of retirement from preaching the gospel and making disciples. You may be able to have an earthly job that you can find financial security and retire from that. But if your idea of retirement is to simply travel the world and do your thing, you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ because my life is not mine and I'm not here to do my thing. Jesus said, I'm on the way to the cross. I'm on the way to Calvary. I've not got any rest until it's done. I've got a destiny to fulfill and I'm going to fulfill that destiny. And if you, sir, are going to follow me, you better be ready to be pushed to your limits. And do not think you're going to be able to relax in the ultimate goal and its accomplishment of being a disciple. Notice in verse 59, and he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Second thing, first is the idea of intensity. Secondly is the idea of priority. This man's father is not dead. Notice what Jesus said. He said, let the dead bury the dead. You go preach the kingdom of God. You go preach the kingdom. That's the commission. You go preach the kingdom. Let the dead bury the dead. Can I tell you something? He said, now, you're for, you come my disciple. Guess what? Your first priority is not to your father. It's to me. My first priority is not to America. It's to Jesus. My first priority is to the master and preaching the commission, the gospel of the kingdom. This is a priority. This is number one priority. Everything in your life must be positioned according to this. This man's request was to go home to make a delay on the preaching of the gospel. To go home and wait till his father dies. Make his commitment to his father. And when his father dies, he'll be free from that. And then he'll come and serve Jesus. Jesus doesn't play second fiddle. Jesus doesn't become second master. Jesus doesn't become an afterthought. Jesus is not something you do after you've done everything else. He is who you follow first. His will first. His commands first. Do you have a sense in your life as a disciple 
that my first work in this world is to fulfill the commission. What am I doing as a disciple and what am I producing and doing to build the church of Jesus Christ? That can include, surely, being with your family. But if spending time with your family is only about you doing some worldly activity, you missed it. You build your family and you strengthen your family so you can build the kingdom of God. We all have different roles in this. We all have different jobs in this. I understand that. Everybody's not a a, a pastor in a church, but everybody's a disciple. What are you doing to build the lives of others? Are you conscious of that? Or is your life only conscious of, I got to get the paycheck in? I got to survive till the weekend. Woo. Might be able to work church in today, tonight. I don't know. I'm feeling I had a rough day at work Wednesday night. I'm not going to worry about that tonight. Because you know what? If I go to church, it's going to make me too tired, and I've got work tomorrow. Well, we see your priority. In other words, Jesus is there for your convenience and not there as your convictor and your guide. Can I tell you the invitation of the gospel is not an invitation to some little game or some little plaything or some little social club or some little religious activity. You and I are followers of Christ and his life is one of intensity and his priority is to do the will of God and to preach the gospel of the kingdom and it needs to be the priority in your life. Everything you do in your life ought to be shaped by your attitude toward Christ and fulfilling his commission. You should see your job as a fulfillment of that commission. That you're there to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You should see where you live as a fulfillment of that commission. You should see building your family as a fulfillment of that commission. You should see that I am working with Christ. This is the work that he's doing and it's priority. Number one in my life. Thirdly, he says, and another said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back to, is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the idea of exclusivity. What do I mean by that? This man is telling on himself from the beginning. He's seen the ideal. He's seen the greatness of Christ. He's seen the nobility of Christ. How many of us are like that? We've seen the, this Lord and his majesty and his nobility. I'll follow you. I want to be your disciple. I want to tell others about Christ. I want to do that. But, but, I, but I, I need to go bid farewell to some things. I, I, I need to go check some things first. There's a listlessness. There's, a, there's almost a sense of wistfulness about him that, that is a sense that, hey, I've got some things I need to say goodbye to. In other words, they're pulling at me and there's some regret to them and I'd like a final moment with them. A final moment with the world? A final moment with something that's going to keep you? Who is first? There's an exclusivity. Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow, looking back. It's not a man who puts his hand to the plow and somehow turns for a moment and takes a glance. No. It's the man who's got his hand on the plow but has got his heart where he came from. His feet and hands are going forward. His heart's back there. Mm -hmm. That's what he's doing. He's looking back. 
He's not fit because he'll never plow a straight furrow. He's not fit to be in the kingdom. Why? Because I'll tell you, in his life, the kingdom is only something that's an ideal and not a reality. And it's not strong enough in his life to give his heart to. He'll give his service to it. He'll give his labor to it, but not his heart. He'll leave his heart back there. And though he's here, he really wants to be there. And though he's here, he regrets that he had to leave that because this becomes the only means of salvation. And that's how we often treat it. We're in the church. We pray. We do these things because we feel if we don't, we're going to be lost. If we don't, we're going to be left out. The crowds, I don't want to be left out of the crowd. I don't want to miss heaven. Let me tell you, buddy, wherever your treasure is, there's your heart. And if your heart, if God's not enough to have your heart, if he's not enough to say, hey, Lord, I'm yours. I don't care what I got to leave. I don't care what's got to be laid down. But back there is nothing. I only look forward. I want you. I don't want anything back there. I'm moving on for Jesus. I'm a disciple of the Lord. Teach me your way. Amen. Well, can you bear with me a few more minutes? Now I want you to go to Luke 14. Let's flip over. Fast forward. This will entail some of the principles I had mentioned to the young folks this morning. I got a little bit ahead of myself. Forgive me. I've given you two principles as a disciple. Number one, it is that you identify with Christ and you live as Him. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means you're going to be as your Lord. Right? However He's treated, you're going to be treated. You're going to live like He lives. You're going to do as He does. and You're going to be treated like He was treated. Secondly, is you must abandon the earthly. There's an intensity, a priority, and an exclusivity. It's the kingdom and nothing else. No looking back. No double-heartedness. No double-mindedness. No hands on the plow and heart back there. Hand and hearts aren't divided in the kingdom of God. Not to be a disciple. You abandon the earthly. And you make Christ the priority. Thirdly, Luke 14, verse 26. What's happening? It's been another great day. In the Lord's life, a man healed on the Sabbath day, had the dropsy, beginning of the chapter. Christ has got invited to a supper. They love it, you know, some of them do. And he's noticed how that how they like to be promoted. And they like those nice seats and to they like the praise of men. And, and the Lord, he reproves them for that. Then he tells them, when you make a supper. Why don't you invite some folks who can't, don't have anything to buy a supper with? Instead of just inviting folks that you go get something back from them. And then he, he goes on to one of them say, it's blessed man that eats bread in the kingdom of God in verse 15. And then he gives this parable, an interesting parable because it comes into play again. He talks about this man that had a big old supper. And it sent out invitations at supper. And then when he got it ready, he sent someone to tell him, hey, it's ready. As soon as he sent them out there and said, it's ready, and he got to them, you would think, it's supper time. This is a prominent leading citizen. And you got to eat anyway. And you think folks would be, oh, my, I've been waiting for that supper. I've been waiting for that party. Woohoo! As soon as he gets there, they start making excuses. First one says, 
I, I bought me a piece of ground. I got to go check it out. Another one said, I, I got five oxen. I, I got to go prove them. What, do you think the oxen are going to get mad at you or something? You think the ground's going to fuss at you because you didn't? I mean, how long does it take to go eat? And go honor this man who bid you to a supper. And then another one says, I married a wife and I can't come. Two things, two things that were the reason for the excuses. Possessions and relationships. These are two things that hinder us as being a disciple. Possessions and relationships. Ground, oxen, possessions. Wife, relationships. Now watch what Jesus is going to do. As a result of this, in the parable, man, he, he goes out and he has got bukus of people that are following him. A massive crowd is following Jesus Christ. Watch it, verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and he said to them, he's got this massive crowd. And he stops the whole show and hold it, hold it. I got to tell you all something. Y'all are following me. We'll paraphrase it a little bit, but. He said, y'all, y'all are following me, but let me, let me tell you something. Any of you out there, any, you come to me and you don't hate your father, your mother, and your wife. Remember that guy back there whose wife kept him back? Your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters and even yourself. You can't follow me. You can't be my disciple. Boy, could you hear the murmuring in the crowd at that one? Be like a beehive right there. What do you say? What do you mean by that? What? You think he wouldn't preach something to run us off? We got some good tithers around here. They're going to be upset at that. Some of those rich folks over there are going to be upset at that. You mean to tell me that we got to give a devotion to him that's greater than our devotion to our parents and our wife and our children and my own self? Yeah, that's exactly what he said. And that's one of those proofs of the deity of Christ because there is no earthly man in the world that has a right to make that claim on the lives of others if he's nothing more than a man. Only God has that kind of right to make a claim and say, if you're going to go with me, you've got to love me above everyone else. How y'all doing with that one as a disciple? Is there anyone here that's ever allowed family relationships to cool your relationship to Christ? How do I know? Because I know at the same time there's not some little hatred I need to have towards them because God doesn't want me having heart full of hatred. No, that's obviously not the point. You can't interpret it that way because that would contradict other scripture. I preach this. You understand the principle. The principle is this, that if you would compare my love for Christ with my love for them, it will be like love and hate being compared. But here's the thing, is that in the time... You see, it will never be a problem when loving Christ and loving your mother, your father, your brother, your sister 
doesn't bring a conflict. In other words, the desire of your brother and sister is that you also follow Christ. But the minute that your family places a demand upon you that equals the demand of Christ, you're now in a position you got to choose. Your family says, come after me. And Christ says, come after me. And now, if I give myself to my family, I've got to lower my devotion to my Lord. You can tell this. If your devotion to your family has cooled your devotion to Christ, you're no longer loving Christ, as that verse says. You're no longer following Christ. You're following self and devoting yourself somewhere at an extent that you should not be devoting yourself. And so that if all of a sudden to do this shortchanges everything else, I've got to ask, where's my devotion? But again, the problem is when it comes into conflict, when two loves that I have, I love my wife, I'm commanded to love her. But when the will of my wife and the will of Christ come into conflict, whose will do I choose? And Jesus says, I ought to be your first love. Amen. How are you doing with that one? Have you ever let a family member get so a hold of you that it pulled you so much that that kind of commitment pulled you away from your love to Christ and caused him to get shortchanged? I'm telling you, he's got to be first love. It can even it can be a number of things. It could be something you're doing on your work. It could be it could be a job. I'm telling you, I'm conscious of this. Help us, Lord, right here. You're not a disciple of this world. You're not a disciple of your parents. You're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Amen. Christ. Yeah. And this is stringent. This is, this is tough. But I'm telling you, when you've got to choose, it better be Jesus. And there better be that you keep him in the first place all the time. How many times have you lowered your standard because you're afraid you'll lose your child? And you've let your child get by with things in your home. You've loved your child more than Christ. Hello? When you love Christ first, it's, it's, it's obvious. It's demonstrated. But I'm telling you, I felt it. You get so pulled in your work that you're doing so much in the, in the work in the kingdom that you forgot that you're not following a principle, you're following a prince. You're not following a rule, you're following the ruler. You're not here to be devoted to a cause, you're devoted to Christ. Amen. I'm not here to carry a banner, I'm here to demonstrate a living Lord. Amen. You understand that? Yeah. Jesus lets that crowd know, your love and devotion to me has got to be more than anything else in this world. So that there will come a time when you have to say no to your family and yes to me and they will think you hate them. Because you didn't put them first. Hello? You can bear with me a few more and I'll close. Whosoever doesn't bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bear his cross. We talked about that this morning. Luke didn't mention it here, but 
there and, and other place in the Gospel of Luke, he mentions it, Matthew mentions it, Mark mentions it. There's always typically an explanation that goes with this verse and says, for whosoever shall lose his life shall save it. Lose it for my sake, shall save it. Whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. But if he loses it for my sake, he'll save it. He said, what shall a prophet have made if he gain the whole world and lose his own life? That's what he says. Now get this. What does it mean to take up that cross? What a statement. Think about it for a moment. You're a Jew. You're following this one who's been doing miracles. You've, you've, you've left your community for a while. You've, you've, you've laid things down at home. You left your fishing nets. You've went out to the wilderness. Man, you're following this man. Whenever he put the Pharisees to shame, you chuckled. You said, about time someone put him in their place. You know, you're just, man, you, this is the greatest thing since peanut butter or we're better than that. I don't mean to belittle, but I mean, you're just like, you're just caught up with it. It's wonderful. It's the way folks are. Sometimes they come, oh, this is wonderful. Look at this church. The people are so nice. Everything's so good. It's wonderful. We're not here to invite you to a social club. We're here to make disciples. Right. Woo, glory. Right. And Jesus turns to the crowd, and they're all shaking in their boots now because he calls for a devotion. And then he said, by the way, I want you to take up your cross. And if you're not willing to deny yourself and take up your cross, you just well go home. Because my followers carry a cross. Yeah. Woo! See, for us, that's become idolized. For us, that's become softened. For us, that's become a church icon, and we have lost the value of that. But in their mind, they've seen crucifixion. Many of them have watched a man as he has not had to pick it up. It was probably thrust upon his shoulders. They've watched that man scream in agony. They've heard the piercing scream of a voice of, of a man who carries that, that cross beam out to the outside the city and he's there and he's nailed or tied however they do it and fastening that to that cross and you've watched him there. Jesus died actually fairly quickly and you've watched him there the first day. Go by two days, three days and they're still there gasping last breath and they're writhing in pain and agony and this idea of a cross is the ugliest form of of execution that's probably been established. It's horrible. It's wretched. It's something that's only for criminals. It's something that's only for bad people and this prince and this king says all of my followers carry a cross. It's a sign of death. The cross was a symbol, it was an instrument of death. That's what it was. Lose your life. Amen. We talked about it this morning, and Luke will tell this, that he says, take up another place Luke records was in our lesson this morning. Take up your cross daily. Deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Amen. For whosoever shall lose his life. That's the explanation. What's it mean to take up your cross daily? It means you get up. There's a consciousness each day that I don't belong to myself. I am the Lord's possession. 
I am the servant of the Lord. I have lost my life for his sake. I go to work, but I don't work for myself. I work for Jesus. I am the father of this family, but it's not for my glory. It's his glory. I pastor a church, but not to gain notoriety or to win, have some big ministry, but to build the body of Jesus Christ. Oh, hallelujah. I may sew shoe leather, uh, uh, shoe soles on the shoes. I may be out uh, selling used cars. I may be doing this uh, or doing that, uh, but I've got one thing today. I do not own myself. I am the Lord's servant. I have died to me and I am alive to him. My body is to be presented a living sacrifice. And today I am delivering myself up to him to exhaust, to use for what he wants. I am his possession. I belong to him. What kind of leader has a right to make such demands upon his followers other than the king of glory, other than the Lord of glory other than the creator of the world. Nobody has a right to make that kind of demand on your life but Jesus does. He said I am going to give my life for you. You are to give your life unto me. He gave his life so you could live and said if you lose your life for him you will live. Close. Verse 33. And likewise, who service shall be of you and forsaketh not all that he hath. You cannot be my disciple. Stand to your feet. Did you notice two things he dealt with? Did you notice them? This fellow that has put off the supper invitation because of his wife has shown who his first love is. He loves his wife more than the fellow that bid him to the supper. Yeah. And did you notice those fellows that loved their possessions more than they loved the one that bid them to the supper? Did you notice that? And Jesus said, you got to forsake all to follow me. Yeah. That doesn't mean everyone takes a vow of poverty and sells all their possessions. But your attitude towards them changes. Your car is no longer yours. Your house is no longer yours. Your money is no longer yours. Your family is no longer yours. Whatever you have, sir, forsake it. Follow me. So what are we calling people to in this gospel? We're going into a world that's in love with itself and leading their own lives and telling them, you need to repent because you weren't meant to be your only shepherd. You need to turn your heart to Christ and let him be the shepherd of your life. But can I tell you, yes, it does mean eternal joy. It does mean eternal joy. Wonder in his glorious presence. It does mean, Brother John, a future that's as bright as it could ever be painted by mortal man. But, sir, I must let you know that here and forever, he'll have to be your first love. And there will come times in your life that you will have to look 
at someone else you love and say, not today. The Lord has placed a demand upon me and I cannot do this today because He is first in my life. And you have to give up every morning and develop a consciousness that you carry a cross. It's an instrument of shame. It's an instrument of death. It's an instrument of reproach. That people are going to make fun of you. They're going to mock you. They're going to hate you. But you have lost your life for Jesus Christ. Carry that cross with dignity. Quit whining about it. Quit coming to church. Oh, I had some folks that treated me bad the other day. Get off of it. Bear your cross with dignity. And say, some folks mocked me for the cause of Christ. Made fun of me because I talked about Jesus. I lost my job because of my conviction. Glory. Hallelujah. Oh, that I may bear the cross. Oh, that I may bear the cross for the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. It is a small thing to experience the rejection of this world that I may be received into eternal glory for the king. I will not be ashamed of him in the face of this adulterous and sinful generation. And oh, the demands that have been placed on my finances. Oh, I've been giving to this and to that. Oh, I had to help my neighbor. Oh, a Bible study at my house. Oh, my tractor got used for the Lord. Oh, the church needed my possession. My brother had to use my tool. Come on. It doesn't matter. I gave up ownership of that a long time ago. Amen. Jesus Amen. is supreme. Yes. We've got to tell folks from now on, you own nothing. He owns everything. Amen. Amen. I'm going to tell you right. You can say what you want. It's easy to sit here in church and say amen. It's easy to sit here and say, I love that and that's good. But I'm going to tell you what, when tomorrow comes and that demand is placed upon you, that's going to tell the tale. That's going to tell the tale. Which love do you choose? Which possession do you retain? Come on now. Which one are you going to use to make an excuse? Which relationship? Which possession? Or are you going to surrender it all, take up the cross, and say, I belong to Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us. We're here to make disciples. We're here to call people to a commitment and say, this is not a game. We're following Jesus. Let's give him our all. It's going to cost us everything, but we're going to gain everything. Thing. Glory to the Lamb of God. And I promise you'll gain far more than you ever get up. And you will gain the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. For if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Would you lift your hand this morning? Oh, Father God.